What's up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia here with Sean Hughes. We're finally back after a couple weeks off for episode 235 of the MMA Ratings podcast. Uh, Sean, it's been a minute, man. Why don't you let everybody know how you're doing? I'm not doing too bad. I've been uh, dealing with family stuff, so it's been hectic. But other than that, still going, still staying busy, still ready to talk to mixed martial arts and boxing and whatever else comes up. Any street beefs on site? Oh, we're going to definitely be talking about some stupid-ass street beefs. I can't wait to get to that segment. That'll be the second segment of the night. But before we do that, we have to always acknowledge everyone who takes the time to check out our show. Please be sure to hit the like button, subscribe wherever you find us. Um, and share as well. You can check us out at MMA Ratings Net, which is always the first spot to hit us up for our, all of our flagship content. You can check us out on Instagram or Twitter at MMA Ratings Net in both places. Um, I am R Garcia underscore sports. Schwann is Black Jordan Green. And also, if you check us out at MMA Ratings across all your podcasting networks and YouTube as well, give us a like and subscribe there too. Um, but as Juan said, we have a street beef to talk about. We will be talking about that in a second, though, because I feel like we have to talk about the important stuff, the fights that actually matter, the fights that actually get people paid. And let's talk about UFC London first and foremost. This card was on Saturday. And I had totally forgot what it felt like to work a Saturday card and be done while it was still night out. It ended about 7.30 over here, and I ended up going out and having a good time with some friends of mine. But... Schwan, this was actually a fun card. I really enjoyed it from top to bottom. Yeah, it was the best thing about it was um, the fights weren't super important. Like a lot of the fights weren't really meaningful fights in divisions, but they were all uh, exciting. Some were one-sided. Most of them were pretty competitive, but they they had decisive winners. So you, I always say, there's two kind of cards. There's cards with important fights that may not be great, and there's cards with great fights that may not be important. This was in the second category. Yeah, it definitely was. And I saw this, I saw or listened to some people compare it to a boxing event where there's a lot of people who are up and comers getting placed against opponents they could beat. Did this card look like that to you on paper or did it kind of play out like that too? Uh, Yeah, I mean, looking at the card, there's people who could fight, but it's never, it's never anybody who like, who is one or two, except for the heavyweight because of the nature of heavyweights. Most of these fights, people aren't within, you know, they're not within three to five fights of being really even elite, much less title contenders. So it's like it takes some of the uh, pressure off of it. It takes away some of the appeal initially because it's not they're not sexy fights. They're not top ranked guys. They're not guys who who look to be dominant or potential blue chip type of people. So it takes some of the interest off, but it takes some of the pressure off any fight like. If these were all fights between ranked people, we would, wouldn't be like highly ranked people. We wouldn't be as enamored because it's like, well, these are the best of the best. That's what we expect. Mm-hmm. High level fights from high level ranked people. These fights stand out because they're not very they're not matchups that you would think would have some of the endings they've had. Like, like the Molly McCann fight. When's the last time she ended a fight like that? When's the last you time know, what? When's the last time Molly McCann ended a fight like that? I mean, no women's fighter has ever ended a fight like that. That was the first ever backspinning elbow in women's MMA or UFC history. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the, the technique, but also like most of the fights don't really end in knockouts, not devastating knockouts. So it's like everybody kind of outperformed because the expectations were already, you know, at a four. So even if they just performed at a six, it's 
outstanding, but a lot of these ended in like seven, eights, or nines, and they kind of highlighted it. It made it made it because of the matchups and the people involved were not high level. The the endings kind of bolstered our opinion of the fight and bolstered our opinion of the card. The fights weren't super well matched up, except for the fact that it was fighters who had something to lose and were competitive. But still, like none of these guys was within three to five fights of impacting their division with any sort of importance as far as title contenders or even being fringe contenders. So they outperformed the expectation. And so now people will look back on this card favorably. Yeah, it was definitely an enjoyable card for me as well, too. Um, like you said, there were a number of fighters who, as like Patty Pimlet, for example, who were placed against individuals that, that they should have steamrolled. Maybe or maybe not they actually pulled that off, and we'll be talking about that in a moment as well, too. But let's talk about where we did see some steamrolling, where Tom Aspinall finished. Now, okay, he finished Alexander Volkov, but he finished him with a straight arm bar. Now, I'm just a brown belt. I've only been training jiu-jitsu for about 12 years or so, um, give or take. That shit isn't supposed to work. If you're at a – I don't even – like, there's so many – ways that that Volkov could have kind of fought out, out of that position. I was stunned to see a straight arm bar work in the UFC at this level against someone as um, experienced yeah. as Alexander Volkov. What was your thought about that finish there? And then we're going to talk a little bit about Aspinall as a heavyweight prospect. To me, it seemed like Volkov was a little... Like, he wasn't all the way there. He he didn't respond. Usually he throws lots of volume. Lots Usually he forces exchanges, and, you know, he'll attack from long range, throw a lot of volume, and kind of circle and kind of play a little bit of keep away, but a high volume, kind of like a Joanna Jadrick, kind of play the angles, use the long range, use the volume to chip you up. He didn't seem as aggressive as I usually see him, and he didn't seem to handle getting hit or pressured very well at all. Mm-hmm. Um he seemed like he froze up. He seemed like every time Aspinall hit him, and I don't know if Aspinall just hits that hard. I, I haven't seen it in previous fights, but Volkov's a very experienced fighter, for one, and a very experienced striker. And to me, he looked like a guy who wasn't very experienced in striking at all. Like, he just seemed frozen. The volume wasn't there. The movement wasn't there. That he, Usually he's not terrible defensively. That wasn't there. He was just He was just there for Aspinall to basically run over. He didn't really do anything to stop anything Aspinall was doing. He didn't do anything to counter it. He didn't, he didn't do anything to get away from it. He kind of just, I don't, want, I don't want to take anything away from Aspinall, but it seemed like Volkov kind of just conceded and let him have his way. And on the ground, it really seemed like that. And I'm, I'm sure Aspinall is very strong. I'm sure he's very, a very good finisher. But when you see finishes like that, it makes you wonder, like, this guy couldn't have possibly be mentally in the fight. There's no way. Because a fight like that against, even at heavyweight, should not be ending like that. You know, if Derek Lewis isn't getting finished like that, no other heavyweight should get finished like that. Yeah, I was definitely very surprised at that finish there. But um, Tom Aspinall, man, he delivered uh, in every, nearly every facet of this fight. His takedowns look good. His timing look good. His speed, I was actually kind of impressed with that. What are your thoughts about his ceiling at heavyweight? Where do you think he goes from here? I'm not sure how well he catches. He's, he's very athletic. He's fast. He moves very well, and, and I think that's also part of the thing that threw off Volkov. I think Volkov's used to having a hand speed and a movement advantage, and Aspinall moved very well, and he's very fast. Um, I don't know what to – I'm not I'm not really sure how well he ta- – I know he pitches very well. I know he shows composure when he has physical advantages. I don't know if, if he shows that same composure when a guy's matching his hand speeds, when somebody's matching his movement, 
when someone's got the physicality, physicality to kind of not let him control it or finish from certain positions. I don't know if he's the same guy. So it's impressive because mostly it's impressive because of his athleticism and the fact that he has a deliberate method to what he's doing, whether it's on the feet or on the ground. But I still don't know how he responds when he's being pressured and when he's he's facing a guy he can't out-athlete. And at heavyweight, only the elite, really the elite heavyweights have the athlete, the kind of athleticism that it's going to take to really test Aspinall. So for so, I don't know that I found anything new about him. I don't know that I'm super impressed because Volkov is an aging heavyweight. He's never been the most athletic person. He's usually just had an advantage in volume. But once he dealt with somebody with, I saw him have problems with Greg Hardy, even though he beat him pretty convincingly. Greg Hardy's speed and athleticism caused him problems. Tom Aspinall is obviously a big, strong, athletic, quick guy, and that caused him problems. So until I until I see Aspinall versus a guy who can kind of take athleticism out of the picture or neutralize it, I'm not really I'm not going to really know what to make of him. Because right now he's he's fighting. It's like somebody who's a front runner. He's he gets a twenty yard head start in a hundred yard in a hundred yard race. So it, it's hard to really, have, really gauge where he's at. So he's jumped from. 11 to number six in the rankings. Ahead of him, we have Cyril Gaunt, Stephen Miocic, Ty Tuovasa, Curtis Blades, and Derek Lewis. Of that group, who do you think he fights? Or who should he try to fight first? Say those names again. We have Derek Lewis, Curtis Blades, Ty Tuovasa, Stephen Miocic, and Cyril Gaunt. Um, I'd probably say Lewis or... Lewis or two of us would probably be the safest ones. They're the biggest hitters, but they're the guys with the uh, uh, with the favorable matchups. They're both striker. They're both strikers, basically. They're both more power punchers. They're not hard to find. And even though they have some athleticism, I'd say Aspinall's got quicker hands and feet, so he'd have some avenues to kind of beat them to the punch, um, stay at distance, and go in and out on them. Maybe even wrestle him because he's a little he's he should be quicker and able to hit the corners to get the takedowns or um you know tie up maybe get a body lock. Neither one of those guys is great defensive wrestlers. Neither one of them is great counter wrestlers. Even though they have technique in Lewis's case, he's more IQ and and cleverness than he is actual technical awareness and discipline. And in in tie to Vasa, he's a little bit more he's a little bit more disciplined as far as his technique, but he's not as crafty or tricky as Lewis. So I think those two would be the easiest easiest fights to make and probably the best fights as far as his favor against someone like Gon. Gon's athletic. He's quick. He moves his feet. He's a much better striker. And um, he's also very physically strong. I don't think Aspinall can bully him or just control him. And against um, Stipe Miocic, I still – I don't know that if Stipe's back. I still feel like Stipe's on a precipice where he could go good or bad. But he's so experienced – and he's so long, and he's so mentally developed and, and well-trained, I feel like there's a lot of avenues that he could exploit with Aspinall, because Aspinall is a good athlete. I don't know that he's an Ngannou-level athlete. I don't think he's an Ngannou-level puncher. And if you can't really just crack Stipe and end his night, um, I think he usually figures his way out around you and can kind of walk you down. And I, I don't think right now that Aspinall is good enough, not from what I've seen. And Stipe's been Stipe's used to athletic guys. Cormier was really athletic, and Ghana was really athletic. He, he's comfortable dealing with those kind of guys. He's got the jab and the boxing to kind of neutralize that. So I, I probably say I probably say Tuivasa. I don't know if Tuivasa takes the fight because he's trying to move a step ahead, or Lewis would probably be the best bet. 
Microphone. My bad. Um, let's talk about another big win on Saturday. And not just, I'm not going to call Arnold Allen a prospect, but he picked up what is his most important victory when he stopped Dan Hooker on Saturday as well. So Arnold, Arnold, Arnold Allen has been winning. This is his eighth straight win in the UFC. It's his biggest name to date. He is now sitting, let me see where he's ranked at 145. He's sitting at number six now in the division. He only fights like once a year. So it's March. If they can get him another fight, what? Well, actually, let's, let's pause. Let's not even go there yet. Is um, what were some of your thoughts about what you saw at a, at a Arnold's win on Saturday, and were you um, impressed with his abilities over Dan Hooker? I I wasn't really impressed with it. I, I was a great win, but Dan Hooker Dan Hooker's got this reputation of being an elite fighter, and that's never been the case. He wasn't elite at 45. He's never he wasn't elite at light lightweight, and moving back to 45 was not something that I thought was in his best interest. Dan Hooker's success, his success as a fighter is built on his ability to force the pace, his toughness, and the, and, the, and the fact that he engages you at multiple levels, even though he's not great at multiple levels. He attacks you. But the whole style and his whole approach, even with the, the game plans they come up with him and the strategies, is built around his ability to absorb punishment and force exchanges. He's been losing that ability because throughout his time at Featherweight, he fought there originally. He said it was drying him out. It was compromising him when he started facing better guys. So he moved up to lightweight. But when he started facing elite lightweights, he started taking, you know, basically world-class beatings that have taken any of the, ta- the, the talent he does have and the durability he has. It's been robbed from him. Fighting Poirier, fighting uh, Edson Barboza, fighting, um, who is it, Michael Chandler. Now fighting Arnold Allen, and that's not considering all the wars he was in at 45 before. And the, and Paul Felder, he was in a war with him. When you fight with that style, you have a timestamp on how long you're going to be elite if you ever get to that point. Dan Hooker's past that point. And losing weight, you know, drawing yourself out makes you less likely, less able to absorb punishment. So he, you have a guy whose punishment, whose chin is already declining, his ability to recover is already reclining. So he drops down 10 pounds. That's not going to help. He's not a great athlete. He's not a big puncher. His biggest thing is he can go hard and he's durable. And now he's not even durable. So that fight looks outstanding because because um, Hooker's got so many fights where he's gone five rounds with guys like Poirier and he's been back and forth wars with guys like Felder. But this fight was a showcase fight. I didn't believe that Felder had anything. I mean, Hooker had anything for him at 45 and Arnold just took advantage of it. He didn't respect him. I don't. I think Arnold saw he wasn't is physically dominating or is or sturdy at 45 and he just jumped on him and he blew his doors off. He he recognized the weakness. And he took he took full advantage of it. So I don't know anything about Arnold Allen that I didn't know before and I didn't know anything about Daniel Hooker that I didn't know before. I'm really shocked that people are impressed by this win and I'm really shocked that people thought this was going to go 3 or 5 rounds. There was no way in hell it was going to go 3 or 5 rounds. Dan Hooker can't take punishment like he used to anymore, which makes him a below average fighter. So um, I see I see your point here, and I think that a lot of people were hinging Hooker's value on his last like five performances per se, because if you look at what he's done over his last six, I'm actually going to say his last six 
But you're right. He has taken a whole lot of damage over those last six because he's four and two. Excuse me. The only fight where he didn't take a wide amount of damage was against Islam Makashev, but he got submitted in the first round there. So if, I think a lot of people kind of are looking at Hooker from 2020 when he fought Paul Felder and won that split decision and everything that's occurred since then. They see him as a super tough out, but he'll, he'll beat the lower ranked guys. But when he gets into that top five space, that's when he, he begins to struggle. So you see Arnold Allen picking up a big win here at 145, and it was a resounding one. I think it's his is it his first stop in the stoppage in, in the UFC? He has not stopped anyone since 2018. Mas Burnett. Yeah. That was the last time. Hooker's a big name. It's not a big win because Hooker's not. He's not like that, dude. Like I, after when so Conor see, come, I'm, when Conor was going to come back, I said Conor should fight like Pettis, somebody else, and Hooker. Hooker was in there because I recognized Hooker no longer has his fastball, his chin. That's what he needs. You you can't force a pace because forcing a pace means you're going to take more punishment. You can't aggressively counter when you're an average athlete unless you're going to take a certain amount of punishment. His whole style, his whole approach is based on his ability to pitch and catch. He can no longer catch. That's why I was like, Connor should fight him because he went five rounds with Poirier. Connor Connor's going to blow his doors off and everybody's going to say Connor's back and the whole thing's going to be even bigger. But for some reason, you know, he didn't take that fight. It was obvious. Hooker. Hooker's whole personality is based on his ability to absorb punishment. He no longer can do that a huge amount, and that's because he's faced increasingly tough guys, some being world-class, and he's gone through extensive beatings with them. Felder, even though he put a beating on Felder, Felder put a beating on him. Barboza put a beating on him. Um, who else? Dustin Poirier. Yeah, it was a tough fight, but Dustin Poirier gave him five rounds of punishment. That's worse than a flash knockout. A flash knockout, you're out. You, your body recovers quicker because you haven't gone through minutes and tens of minutes of abuse. A fight like Poirier changes you because it's round after round after round after round of punishment. And he's had multiple fights like that. You don't walk away from that unscathed. And he I didn't totally either. Um, I think that the UFC, I, I think that we're in a different space because I, I, I'm not surprised that this is the way we saw Hooker go out. But I still think it could be considered a big win just because of the way the UFC books now like if if they booked like any other sport if, if they booked like boxing does for example this fight wouldn't have happened or it would have happened in a different position it wouldn't have been the co-main event unfortunately they feed the guys who are in hooker's position to someone that that they're trying to build up and they need names in Britain right now that's why Arnold Allen was put in this position to get this victory here but if you look at 145 what do you do with Arnold next? Again, he's in the same position as Tom Aspinall is. He's now in um, the sixth position in the division. He has Calvin Cater, Chan Sung Jung, who's fighting for the title, um, Yair Rodriguez, Brian Ortega, and Max Holloway. If you had to, if you had to book Arnold in his next fight, which one of those five men are you picking? Probably Calvin Cater. He's tough. He's seasoned. He's experienced. He's got some depth, but I still think he's easy to hit. He took. He's taken tremendous beatings. He can't possibly be as durable as he used to be. He's not. He was never fast. He's not as fast as he used to be. He's not as durable. Um, I don't know that he's as dynamic as people have made him out to be. I think that's a good matchup for Allen. He just coming off a big win, but I still think he's very vulnerable. Rodriguez is vulnerable too, but he's more vulnerable technically. He's still his chin still seems to be there. 
His explosive first step and his power still seems to be there. Um, Arnold Allen could probably out-wrestle him and choke him out and out-grapple him. But with a guy with that kind of dy- dynamic striking and dynamic athletic ability, there's always a 50-50 chance you get clipped at some point or another. So I, I would figure that Calvin Cater is the, bi- the best option. Um, Cater's the guy who's got to go rounds to beat you. And if you're a better athlete than him and you, you've got some discipline in your counters and even in your leads, um, you'll have multiple opportunities to turn a fight around on a guy like that. Um, you just have to be able to navigate navigate his big spots of offense. Otherwise, it's just steady breaking, steady pressure that breaks you down. Um, I think Allen could probably, I think he could take him down. I think he could actually catch him with a big counter and, and put him on skates and finish him on the ground or, or, or maybe put him out. Um, I don't have much faith in Cater's defense. I don't have much faith in Cater's chin past a certain point anymore. So I would think Cater would be the best fight because he's coming off a big win. Yair will probably be technically easier, but he's still very durable and he still hits very hard. So that puts him more of a makes it more of a 50-50 fight. I think Cater would be the best fight for him right now. Good stuff there, man. So um let's look at the rest of that card. So Patty Pimblet, man, I don't get it. I need you to maybe I'm like old man Clint Eastwood here. I don't get it. What the fuck does everybody love about this guy? I have no idea. I guess it's some kind of persona. Maybe they feel he's relatable. Maybe they think he's just a cool, funny, clever guy. I don't I don't think that's true either. Um, I don't think he's a great fighter. I don't think he's got great charisma or charm. He actually comes off as a little lowbrow and crass to me, but you know, there's a segment of mixed martial arts who just love that love any guy who talks shit and says he's the best. Basically he's cocky, he's confident, and people will will back up a guy who seems confident and cocky. That's about all I can see. Because based off his fighting, I don't get it. And nothing he says as far as trash talk or advertising himself, marketing himself, is even particularly clever. Like, now Connor's not as clever as he used to be, but at one point, Connor came off as very clever. Pimblet just seems like a very bad impression of a of a Connor McGregor or maybe even a Michael Bisping. You think so? Yeah, I... I, I I don't see what I see why among his among his nationality, why he has people, because he's going into the big American organization. He's a star. He's got some heat on him. I get that. He seems like he wants to fight people. He's kind of got a swag and an attitude. So I kind of get that appeal. But like I said, he's not really clever. He doesn't he doesn't really have a charm about him and nothing about his fighting style at this level says that he's a future champion at all. And and his response to being offered top 15 guys about pay me more. Well, I, I do respect the business acumen of that. That just makes makes me think that even he knows that he's not ready for those guys yet. See, I think it's I I, I think it's two parts of that. I think that we're gonna see more guys taking this Sean O'Malley type of approach to it, where they are on these entry level UFC contracts, fighting for 10, 10 and 10, 12 and 12, whatever it may be. And they're like, yeah, we'll fight these contracts out. But if you want me to fight contenders and, and take these big fights, you got to pay me big money. So I, I, I appreciate that, too, as well. I, I, res- I, oh, sorry. I respect it, but the, the downside is if you're facing top guys, and I'm not saying that's not smart, get paid. But when you get beat by a top, let's say, 13 to 10 guy, that makes sense. When you get beat by a guy who's not even – as these divisions get further along, you're going to start having guys who aren't ranked who are going to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. He loses to some unranked guy. That does a lot of damage. You can't spin that. You lose to a top 15 ranked guy, top 13, top 10. 
at the lower parts of 10, people understand that. He didn't have the experience. He's accomplished. He, he's got so much time in. He's faced the best. You just got him at the wrong time. You weren't ready. You lose to a guy who's not too much better than you as far as his, his record and, and his positioning in, in, in the division or in the world. How do you spin that? I mean, you don't. It, it, it reminds me of um, you remember. I'm gonna pull it up right now. But what won't that? I don't think that that'll happen. And the reason why I'll say that is, you remember when Dustin Poirier beat Josh Grisby? Yes. They're not gonna let that happen again, because Josh was supposed to be that guy that was up and comer that they expected to face Jose Aldo at some point in time. He ran into Dustin Poirier and that fell completely apart. I think when you look at guys like Sean O'Malley and um, Patty Pimlet, since since they're electing to not fight the higher ranked guys at lower cost, they're going to find a way to keep them fighting guys that have no business being in the UFC. They, and that's unfortunately that they can do that because that, that's, that's, how, that's how much that of a control they have over the booking and over the matchmaking. It's smart as long it's smart for both guys as long as they're developing appropriately mm-hmm. because when O'Malley did take a step up, he got fairly embarrassed. You got to step down real quick. So, so you can, you can, you can do that act. They need to pay me. They need to pay me. That's, that's all well and good. But if you're not getting better in incremental aspects, when you face that person, it's going to be very one-sided and it's going to be very ugly and you'll still have your fans because people will believe in you. But when the curtain gets pulled back, the reality of what you are is what you are. We know that Sean O'Malley is not an elite type fighter. He can talk about how he never talks about him being himself being a better fighter than people. He keeps talking about I'm so popular, I bring so much money in. I respect that. But even in his arguments, it's never about my skill set. It's about what I bring to the table as far as money wise. So you're telling us already that you're not who you say you are. And it's fine. That's I'm okay with that. But you need to be okay with that when you start getting questioned about how much you need to get paid or why you're not getting certain opportunities. It's a long game. It could work out. But as, a, as the divisions start getting better and you start facing more people, it's going to be hard to protect people every time all the way around. It's going to be very hard to do so. Yeah, I think that they're going to be very selective about who they're protecting and who they're not. Like, for example, Sadiq Youssef and Arnold Allen fall. I totally forgot that they ran into each other. And I figured that Youssef was someone that they were trying to build up in the division as well. And they had those two threats go against each other at that point in time. There's no way they have Patty Pimlet fight somebody of either one of those skill sets anytime soon. Yeah, I just think it could backfire because fans might be like, you know, like he really doesn't. The thing that works with Connor is Connor talked a big game and he called out and went after all a, a higher level of guy each and every time. That's why it works for Connor. If Connor would have been fighting top 20 guys and stayed in the top 20s for two or three years. Connor never would have got never would have caught on. Part of his brashness that got rewarded was the fact that he was demanding the best and then he was going out there and crushing them. Pimblet talking that talk is great, but even in this fight, he struggled against a guy who's not elite. He could have lost that fight. There's some moments he could have lost that fight. And people are gonna figure out that he's he's not facing the best guys, and even in not facing the best guys, he's not dominating them. That's a problem as far as how he sells himself, how he markets himself. Yeah, I think that um, I, I think the fans are going to be firmly behind him for an extended period of time, for better or for worse. 
let's talk about some other stuff on this card before we move on to our second topic. Molly McCann getting a early candidate for knockout of the year. And then um, Ilya Teporia fucking knocking, excuse me, knocking the hell out of, um, I can't remember the guy's name that he fought, but he picked up a big knockout victory as well. So I thought he was on his way to a loss, but he pulled out a, a pretty strong win there. What else um, stood out for you on Saturday's card? Teporia needs to drop weight class. He's not big enough. He doesn't take the shots is the way I liked him, and I don't I, I don't like his physicality at lightweight. He's got the power to level it out, maybe the explosiveness, but physically, those guys are going to wear on him. The better guys are going to just break him down with their pressure and their physicality, in my opinion. Um, seeing Jillian Robertson completely fall apart against J.J. Aldridge was pretty embarrassing to watch. Um, they tried to make her into a superstar. They've given her multiple fights, step up fights, and opportunities to build her brand and establish herself with the fans and take over the division. They've they've really tried to push her, but she's never been able to learn how to manage her striking so she could set up takedowns and get it in position for her clinches to get to the ground where she could overwhelm somebody. Um, and she faced JJ Aldrich, who is a seasoned pro, a pro's pro, but who's an un- unathletic, light punching and volume punching type fighter. She should have had her way with Aldrich just based off of talent and skill set alone, and she wasn't able to get anything done. Aldridge pretty much just had her way with her the entirety of the fight. And um, I don't know what they're going to do with her. They seem to have a lot of faith in her, and they want to believe in her, but she's given them nothing to believe in. She she just consistently loses anytime she's forced to step up, and now she's losing against girls who aren't even elite in athleticism or in their ranking the division. Yeah, um, uh, there, were, there, were, there, excuse me, there were some good women's fights on Saturday's card as well. I really enjoyed it from top to bottom. Let's move on to topic number two, where we have a talk about another fight that didn't happen in the cage, but still happened. So we have to throw around the term allegedly here, and we actually do have an update because I just saw some more information on ESPN come out about this. But um, Jorge Masvidal allegedly assaulted Kobe Covington in Miami in a steakhouse on Saturday, or excuse me, Monday late evening. According to the situation, um, there has been a police report filed. Covington was not named in the police report because he um, he used his right. There, there there is a right that people cannot have their name in a in a in a police report. It's quite funny that he chose to do so, but still, uh, eyewitness accounts have been taken, and there has been video. TMZ has a video of it as well too. So Masvidal allegedly knocked out. One of Covington's teeth and uh, chipped another. He is actually being held, according to ESPN MMA today, he's being held in custody in Miami for $15,000 in bail. He's charged with aggravated bad or excuse me, aggravated battery, aggravated battery with bodily harm and criminal mischief. Schwann, what's the first thing you thought of when you saw this story bubbling up? Um. I don't know why everybody was so shocked by it. It seems weird that Masvidal and his manager essentially ratted themselves out. That's the thing that caught me off guard. Because if you had, what's the point of having a mask on and covering up and then making any sort of comment on, on social media? Like, that was just dumb. And then his manager's on there. I heard this happen. Like, just shut up. Even if they knew it was you, nobody could know, really know it was you if you had a ma- if you mask and had a hood on. I, that was very dumb. But ultimately, I wasn't shocked by this. I'm like, I don't, I don't take Kobe Covington seriously. 
But unlike Chael Sonnen and other guys like him, they have a kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of thing about them going. It's kind of a clever wink to the crowd. Covington takes some very inflammatory positions and crosses all these boundaries, but he doesn't do it with any cleverness, any cleverness, any sort of funniness. It's not, not funny when he says it. It just seems very mean-spirited. You're a deadbeat. You're a horrible husband. You're a horrible dad. You're a horrible... It's, it's nothing catchy. It's nothing clever. It's nothing funny. It's just straight insults. And I don't know why he thinks that he's going to be able to continuously talk any kind of way to people and not face any repercussions. That's the thing that shocks me. So I'm never surprised with this. Kobe Covington, didn't he get attacked with a boomerang before? So, he got attacked ooh. with the boomerang. Ali and, Us- and Usman attacked them in a buffet line, too. This ain't new. But that, that's what I'm saying. Like, so why is anybody shocked by this? You know, well, what are you shocked? Kobe says things. He crosses lines. And I know everybody's talking about being mature. I get it. Being adult. But the fact of the matter is, um, when you have real issues with somebody, like, everybody's like, yeah, 25 minutes to fight him. Hey, hang on a second. Okay, so while he steps away, there is a mugshot that is going around of Jorge Masvidal as well, too. He was just um, arrested tonight. So... This is such a stupid situation because obviously, A, okay, you have Covington who says some ridiculous ass shit and somebody finally rolled up to him and, and gave him gave him the business for, for saying it. Supposedly, um, Masvidal basically told him to stop talking about his, his kids, which is an understandable reason to beat him up. But he gave, gave him what he asked for. He said, you can come meet me in the parking lot anywhere after the UFC. He said that. That's what it's where you can meet in part. We, we'll pro, we'll probably we'll probably dust it up again. The the one thing I want to make people understand is, and I hate to cut you off, I apologize. They're like, yeah, 25 minutes. When you have real beef with someone, it doesn't matter if they whoop your ass or not in a pro fight. You still have an issue with them. Most of these people don't have real beef. They have a manufactured beef or an athletic one. Like you think you're better than me, so I'm gonna build up this frustration, this attitude. So we have real heat. There's real heat. But it's athletic heat. It's competitive heat. It's not a real, I don't like you, you cross those sort of lines, I have problems with you. Kobe tries to make everything personal, and it doesn't always get this bad because he doesn't have personal relationships with these people. He has a personal relationship with Usman. Usman has no reason to really give a damn about him. He doesn't have a personal relationship with Robbie Lawler like that where anything he says is going to get to Robbie Lawler or other people. Maybe Woodley. But um, against Masvidal, Masvidal has made it very clear that he's a kind of dude. And people who are saying he's cowardly, they're disgusted, I get that whole point. But when people say, I'm going to roll up on you or I'm going to run up on you, what do you think that looks like? That's a fair one. If you, me and you have a fair one, that's me calling you out. We square up and fight. If you tell me you're going to roll up on me, that means as soon as you see me, you're attacking me. You're not going to, hey, take your jacket off, let's settle. You're just going to run up on me. That's what I'll see you when I see you. I'm going to run up on you on site. That's what all that means. It doesn't mean I wait till I see you. It means when I see you, even if it means I go looking for you. As soon as I see you, it's your ass. And Masvidal has routinely done that. He did it with Leon Edwards. He makes mention of it. He's, he's mentioned before. He's like, I'm a sucker punch artist. He said that before. When he first talked, when he had issues with Kobe, he said, I was going to take a baseball bat to him. And my trainer said, no, fight him in the cage. It is clear that he has a certain way of handling things. And I don't understand why anybody's surprised. And I don't, I'm not on Kobe's side on this. You know, obviously, Jorge Castellan, he cost himself money. He put himself in jeopardy. But there's two things. One, his brand is being this kind of guy. So by him not doing nothing, 
it could affect his brand in a certain way because he's not going to do any real time, in my opinion. He's not going to do any real time. And two, what does Kobe always say? He says, if they want to do something to me, they can find me anywhere. Why don't they just do something? Everybody keeps talking, but nobody will square up with me. He says this. So if Jorge never does anything, Kobe can run around saying, you know, he talks all this stuff about being from the street. He saw me. He saw me at the restaurant. He saw me in the mall. He didn't do nothing. And while that's not a good enough reason to assault somebody and fuck with your money, that's what everybody in MMA, that's their go-to. If he really wanted me, he could have got at me. Instead of talking, he should have swung. How many times have we heard a fighter say that? Instead of talking to me, he should have swung. If he wanted like that, why he wait till people come around? He was right there next to me. Why didn't he just punch me? That's what they say, right? Now somebody did it. Instead of talking, instead of threatening you, instead of making threats online, he just came and found you and punched you square in your face. He did what he said. He did what he said he's gonna do. He did what every MMA fighter challenges other MMA fighters to do when they say, "When I catch you." The first thing they say is, "He saw me in the back room. He ain't do nothing." He saw me eating dinner. He didn't do nothing. I was with my people. He didn't do nothing. Kobe can no longer say that now. And now when Kobe starts acting tough, if I'm a fighter, the minute he starts, to, he, he pushes me, I'm going to be like, where's my lawyer? Where are the cops? Or like, oh, you let Kobe get in your face? He ain't going to do nothing except call the cops if I slap the shit out of him. That's what I'm saying if I'm a fighter. But Kobe asked for it. And Jorge shouldn't have done it. He's old enough to know better. He's got money on the line. But Kobe asked for it, and somebody finally did what everybody keeps saying they're going to do. Instead, instead of telling people how badly they're going to fuck somebody up for talking about his daughter or talking about his family, somebody just did it. That's actually how it happens when you have real beef with somebody. They come looking for you. They don't wait till they see you at a function where people can break it up or at a UFC event where people can break it up. They catch you wherever you're comfortable with, and they run up on you. I don't understand how people don't get this. This is actually how it works. It's not cowardly. This is how it actually works. So we know that Jorge is about that life. I mean, there are other guys in the UFC who might who might be about that life. A couple other names you may think of, even after they get the money. I mean, we've seen the we've we've seen both Diaz brothers fight in the middle of clubs in in Las Vegas before. But so Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor is he flew all the way from Ireland to come get that Khabib. Yeah, true. I mean, I'm not giving that guy any praise regardless of the fact. So, it's true, but if got slapped up, he said, I got, I'm on the plane. I'm on the private jet. But let's talk about the business side of this. Do you think there'll be any more checks that come Jorge's way because of this situation? I don't think so. I think this is actually bad for his business. Part of the reason being is because he's lost three fights out of his last four pretty handedly since 2020. I don't think that this does him any favors long-term. I, I see I see that point, but I see another one. When a guy loses a bunch of fights in boxing MMA, what's the card they go to? He's a tough out, right? He can go rounds. He'll give you war even if he loses. There's a selling point. Jorge Masvidal is no longer considered an elite fighter. Maybe he has the skill set and the experience, but he can no longer get the job done, but what is it What is it that Jorge Masvidal can always always hang his hat on? He's a street dude. He's real. If he says he's going to come see you, he's going to come see you. That's a constant selling point to a certain demographic who's tired of hearing athletes, seeing athletes puff up and get loud, just not to do something because they're like, oh, I don't want to cost myself any money. Then why'd you get in his face then? If you didn't want to cost yourself any money, why did you get in his face 
Why are you holding this interview? Why are you getting loud telling people about you're not going to tolerate disrespect? Yes, you are going to tolerate disrespect because you don't want to fuck with your money. To a certain degree, Masvidal is building with a certain fan base the same kind of thing that Nick and Nate did. Nick and Nate would regularly get in fights. They could have been sued by a lot of people. They've sucker punched people, sucker punching people, threatening people, running up on people, jumping people. They've done all that. They could have been sued too, but it just added to a certain amount of their uh, their uh, charisma, their charm, because these guys, they're not corporate. You know, George St. Pierre is going to let somebody talk crazy to him because he's a company man. Nate Diaz ain't. Nate's going to slap the shit out of you. Nate hasn't won a lot of fights, but people still think of him because he's real. Nick lost a bunch of fights, but they still know he's real. So they accept certain things from him, even though he's losing. He's going to fight anybody. and Maybe somebody will whoop his ass, but he's still going to be there. And if that person talks shit afterwards, he's going to come see him. He ain't going to be cool with him afterwards. Oh, good fight. We're friends. We're buddy. Nick, Nick and Nate have never done that. And Masvidal hasn't either. He stood his ground. As dumb as it may be, he stood his ground and backed up his brand as being a dude who's about that life. When you're about that life, you don't think about finances. You don't think about your future. You don't think about your standing. You think about, I have a reputation. I have a name. There's certain things I'm just not going to let, let fly. And there's a large segment of men who, who watch sports who buy into that. He's a guy with millions of dollars on the line, and even he wouldn't take that shit. That's the kind of guy I, I want to be. I can see that. Um, I could see that. I don't know. Let's see how this court situation plays out, because dude's legit charged. I think I saw somewhere that if he is convicted, it could, it could go up to 10 years in um, a 10-year sentence or so. So let's see. I, I think you could do a plea deal. I think you could do a plea deal. Of course. And if they, if they played it right, let's say he does go to jail. Why doesn't he just pull a Floyd Mayweather? See if you make that Conor McGregor fight before he goes to do you got another you got a whole nother selling point. Mayweather sold extra pay-per-views because people knew he was going away after he fought Cotto. We didn't know if he'd fight again. He's 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 older guy. He even though he's still dominating, he was slipping. We didn't know he's gonna fight after he came out of jail. We didn't know how it would change him. It added to to the it added to the the the, uh, the stakes of the fight. You know, now Masvidal's got nothing to lose. He's going to go do six months, five months in jail. He's got nothing to lose. He, who knows what he's going to say? If Connor gets in his face, who knows how he's going to react? He ain't got nothing to lose. What are they going to do, find him? He already going to jail. Uh-huh. This is the perfect time to make the fight. You got two guys who keep getting in trouble and don't seem to give an F about anything. Put them in front of each other and let's see what happens. Interesting point there, sir. I, I, I'm, it's, it's hilarious to me. So, like, let's see what uh, how that how that plays out. But I think that this is going to hurt his bottom line over time. Um, one, more, one more thing. I I understand as an adult, I understand how as an adult how immature this is. I even understand as far as being a fair, straight-up fight, I understand how cowardly or whatever you want to call it is. But outside of the rational, mature, responsible point of view, there's a certain segment of me that likes the fact that Kobe Covington finally ran his mouth and someone just wasn't having it. Everybody else is like, you know, I don't pay Kobe no mind. I know my wife. I know my kids. I'm a professional. There's a certain segment in me that's like, you know what? Someone said, F it. I ain't going to let them. I ain't going to let him keep talking. He can sue me. He can put me in jail. He can do whatever he wants. But at the end of the day, he's going to know, know that one person wasn't going to take his shit. He knows one person was never going to let, let him slide with that. There's a certain segment of me, because we all know people who talk like that and talk and they talk that way because they have protection. They have friends. They know the right people. We're in a business place, and they, they, they just talk all sorts of rest, reckless and disrespectful. And everybody wants to smack that person. We're all too mature and disciplined to do so. 
But we all think about it. And Masterologist, basically, our Colby is his Colby. T- we all have our Colby Covingtons, and Masterologist smacked the shit out of his. So that 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 to a certain to everybody, everybody can relate to that. There's somebody in your life who talked that stuff that you could have choked out and you didn't because it's unprofessional because they know your family member and you just gotta let them slide. But you know, you just if you could just get one time to just choke them out, punch them, whatever you could, you know, you just love it. So everybody can relate to that because everybody has a Colby Covington in their life. You are very true. You're very true. You're not fooling me, Raphael. Don't don't let that soft voice fool y'all. That dude is waiting for an excuse to trip. <laughs> oh, I mean, look, people will get their ass beat without, without hesitation, right? Not like I don't. That's why I no. Not, we're not even we're not even falling down that rabbit hole this evening on this on this glorious Wednesday evening. Um, talk to me well, about boxing, man. Them, a I, don't you, I agitate on. these people till they gotta get crazy. There's a couple of different things going on in boxing, man. We have two interesting shifts in some fights here because of what's going on in Ukraine. First, we have Lomachenko, who's staying in Ukraine um, to help defend the country as they are invaded by um, Soviet Union or Russia, excuse me, uh, Soviet Union. But as they're being invaded, invaded, he that causes him to lose that fight against Cambosis. On the other hand, Usyk is leaving Ukraine for that upcoming rematch with Anthony Joshua. Talk to me about these two situations here. And do you think someone steps in for um, Lomachenko? Let's start there. Uh, I think they're just going to make the fight with Devin Haney against Lomachenko. I mean, excuse me, against uh, Cambosos. Cambosos was trying to get a big name in there. The best option would have been to get somebody like Gervonta Davis, who has some kind of interest, because Gervonta Davis has sold pay-per-views and had numbers fighting nobodies. His fans and all the rest of the boxing world would have signed on to see him fight the undisputed champion. Um, Lomachenko would be great because Lomachenko's on a two-fight win streak. Excuse me, two dominant wins. And he has a name. And it's a big event because you have a guy who was considered pound for pound before Teofimo Lopez beat him. So if Cambosos beats Teofimo Lopez, he already beat Lopez. He beats Lomachenko. That means he beats the two guys who were the man at the division. He essentially makes up his whole record and his whole time. He can move up to the next division because he beat the two most dominant guys in division back to back. Devin Haney is a good fighter, but Devin Haney isn't a popular fighter. He's not a fighter with exciting fights with high drama. He's not a guy who's a dynamic puncher. He's a good athletic skill, defensively aware, offensively efficient fighter. He's a very good fighter. He doesn't have much appeal. He doesn't really sell seats. But um, he's got a title. And as a result, if Cambosis beats him, he's unified. If Haney wins, he's unified. But Cambosis wanted a big name that would help his brand and help him sell out in Australia. Davis would have helped that. Hell, even Ryan Garcia might have helped that. Devin Haney, people just don't people just don't don't like him. And he does a lot in the social media. He does a lot of interviews. He does a lot of sparring. He does a lot of videos. He just has not caught on, and Cambosis is pretty much being forced to fight him, so I'm assuming he's getting a pretty good payday because he's not going to really make a lot of money based off of the interest or the pay or the or the sales as far as the seats in this place because I'm sorry, Haney's just not that kind of guy. He's not the kind of guy who draws that kind of interest. And what about the fight between Joshua and Usyk? Do you think that um, the time that Usyk t- – took this to go to Ukraine for the defense uh, situation. How will that impact him? I think they're scheduling it for sometime in June or July. I 
I guess it could impact him, but he's such a better fighter than Joshua. He's such a better boxer. He's quicker than him because he's smaller coming up. He's got a better IQ. Um, he's got a better chin than Joshua. Joshua couldn't absorb with the punishment that Usyk absorbed. And uh, he's a better boxer. The thing that Joshua has advantage is he's stronger. He's bigger. He probably hits harder. But due to his chin being so suspect, he can't really fight like a bigger man because that, that means taking a certain amount of punishment that he knows he can't take. He can't ramp it up past a certain point, which makes it very hard for him to out-athlete Usyk or to physically bully Usyk or to just try to go and knock him out. Because in trying to knock someone out, you're opening yourself up to be knocked down. And he doesn't have the defensive awareness nor the cardio to do so. I don't think it changes the fight very much. Joshua has a chance because he can box a little bit, but he's basically it's based off his power and his physicality. His durability is questionable. His boxing is not going to get leaps and bounds better. So Usyk's going to have the same advantages going in. The only question is, is Usyk 100% locked in? If he's locked in, the fight will be fine. If he's not, it, it, could, it could be a tougher fight. It could be a loss. It's kind of weird to me that Usyk's taking this fight, I guess because the, the Cambosis fight would have to take place earlier. So that's why I was wondering, like, why couldn't they just move the Cambosis fight back? But it'd probably be too much trouble. But um, I don't think it really affects anything. The fight's the same regardless. The question is, as long as he's mentally locked in, I don't know if he can be mentally locked in knowing what's going on in your country. But if he's mentally locked in, I don't know that I see it a whole lot differently than it was before. Interesting stuff there. I'm looking forward to seeing like what that situation looks like from a media standpoint. How do they cover those stories and talk about what's going on there and how it's impacted these fighters? I'm, I'm interested in hearing those stories. I wonder like now, like, you know, people used to say Loma's scared of this guy. And I'm like, this dude willingly went into a war zone to fight. So I guess nobody can ever say he's a coward or he's scared. What are you going to say about Usyk? You know, oh, he's he's fearful of my power. Like He was in a war zone like three months ago, dude. What are you talking about? Like a lot of the narratives they use to make these fights seem more important than they are are going to be lost on guys who actually risk millions of dollars to go. Even if I don't even care if they're just doing away from the fighting. They are in a country where an active war is going on. Any time you could get missile, whatever could happen. What what's the argument you use when you say, "Oh, this is a this is a this is a war"? Not really. This is life or death in there. No, not really. He's scared of me. Like I gave up millions of dollars to go get shot at. I, I don't really have any fear of it. You know what I mean? It just it changes. The same thing with Brian Stan when he used to fight. Like, what are you gonna say? Oh, I'm gonna knock him out. He's scared of me. Like Brian Stan saw real. Real war, dude. Like, he may get knocked out, but he's not scared of you. That whole psyching out thing ain't going to work on him. What else are you keeping a close eye on in boxing? Um, I thought Canelo fighting Bivol and Golovkin was going to resort result in a bunch of big-name fights, and it hasn't. Um, everybody's taking these fights that nobody cares about. Um, David Benavides is fighting a fight against a non-elite guy. Caleb Plant's probably going to take a fight before he fights, if he fights David Benavides. Uh, Charlo's fighting uh, another guy who's 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 really an average fighter, maybe a slightly above average fighter, but he's definitely not elite. The whole point of Canelo taking these fights was to take himself off the market, so all the other guys demanding a Canelo fight could go out there and fight somebody and do something that would force Canelo's hand. 
so he could say, I choose you. I choose you because you've done something. And all these guys seem to be doing is still trying to find the easiest matchup possible to maintain their championship or maintain their record and then just complain about who Canelo's fighting. When Canelo is fighting the toughest matchup possibly he could fight. It's getting to be quite embarrassing that guys are saying he's ducking me. He doesn't want the fight. He's scared of me. He took easy money. When he's fighting tougher opponents than any of these guys have ever fought in their entire careers, none of these guys has a resume Canelo has. And Canelo doesn't have to have the resume he has because he makes the most money. He could just fight easy fights. He could just give. He could just take gimmies. He could make millions fighting anybody. But he's going out fighting the best of the best. And instead of other guys trying to get his attention through their fight game, they're trying to make the media. He's afraid of black fighters. He's afraid of the big fighters. Like, dude, nobody's believing this anymore. I'm looking at who you're choosing to fight, and I'm looking at who he chose to fight. And it's clear that one of y'all is a world-class fighter who wants to challenge himself, and one of y'all is just a guy who's looking for a payday. And I usually don't say this about a fighter, but it's, it's getting harder and harder to explain or defend these guys' unwillingness to challenge themselves and face the best, of be- the best available opposition. I keep muting myself, but um, it's interesting that, that, that you put it that way. I think that I think a lot of people are starting to have that frustration that enough people aren't taking the big fights that they want to see, the fights that would make them want to spend their hard-earned $40, $50, $60 to actually um, watch and, and throw a party for. Yeah, it's weird when they say, well, you're scared of me. I'm facing a guy two divisions up behind you who's undefeated and a world champion, but I'm scared of you. What sense does that make? Not enough. Not enough. Um, why don't you let everybody know what you're working on, man, as we close out uh, this episode? I uh, just got a couple articles. I sent them in earlier. Um, I think they'll probably get released sometime in the near future. But I'm just always finding new articles, trying to find ways not to totally take apart MMA camps. But when I see how these people prepare them and I see these game plans and I hear some of these, these comments after the fights, it gets really hard not to just write numerous articles dismantling every single thing they did to prepare a fighter and every single thing they continually do in maintaining their camps and their groups of fighters because they're sending out people tremendously unprepared and they're suffering embarrassing losses because the people who are taking stealing money from them aren't doing their job. You know, you have one job, prepare your fighter. So if your fighter's not prepared, you didn't do the one thing you were supposed to do. But you made sure that paycheck cleared. You made sure you got those hotel rooms and those comp tickets, right? They actually do, man. They actually do. Um, what you got going on, man? But So, like, it's good that we're back. We'll be here next week. I am covering as much professional wrestling as possible. MMA as well. I got some stuff to write this week for Fan Society, so you can catch the work there. But as always, man, we're back. We'll be here next week. Um, next week is WrestleMania as well, too. So we'll probably be talking a little bit about wrestling on the show next week just because um but yeah Shawan, thank you for for hitting us up uh, this weekend or to hitting us up today for another episode of the mma podcast mma ratings podcast uh we'll be back next week thank you everyone and have a great night thank you everybody